Welcome back to the show, everybody. It is Maddie and Ethan for another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. And on this episode of the show, we're going to be going up north to Mendocino County where Maddie and I are going to talk about Anderson Valley. We hope you enjoy. Hey, Ethan. How's it going? Pretty darn good. Good. Hey, did you get that article I sent you? Yeah, I did from Decanter. Yeah, about the champagne and oysters. Yes, I I think it was so fascinating. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar, Decanter recently came out with an article talking about kind of the science behind pairing champagne and oysters. And I think we all know that champagne is always a great wine when in doubt to pair in just about any food with. But this really went to the next level deeper and broke down why oysters and champagne are like the match made in heaven. I mean, this is right up our alley, Maddie. <laughs> you know, like how much we love food and wine pairings. I feel like nowadays I can't eat dinner without having like a glass of wine to pair it with. So my Corvin has seen some good use. Everybody knows like what pairs with what. And it's kind of fun to experiment, but mm-hmm. sometimes you don't really, you kind of like look past the whys. And that that's the stuff that you and I love to get into, the nitty gritty details of these kind of things. So basically this article sums up that we have our five main tastes. And the one that's becoming more popular, sort of underappreciated, but people seem to be obsessed with now, is umami, which is that right. savory, that meaty, that hearty taste. And, you know, that you find it in like mushrooms or burgers or soy sauce. Well, champagne and, and oysters both have umami. Yeah, it's the, the actual like compound called glutamate. Yeah. And that is found in champagne, but more specifically, it's the lees. That makes champagne, of course, different than, you know, Prosecco or, you know, your Andre or whatnot. Um, exactly. But it has this like savory umami component to the wine. And that glutamate is actually the, like the compound that makes umami. So that makes sense. And you kind of don't think of those things when you're drinking a glass of champagne. You know, you get that like toasted bread from the autolysis from the Lee stirring. You get that creaminess, but you don't really think of like this is umami. But going back and really thinking about it. That is umami, mm-hmm. really. And like, I guess the longer the wine, the champagne is aged on the lees, and some, as you know, can age for like several years on the lees itself, that means there's going to be more of this umami character being brought out. What else has umami? Oysters. Mm-hmm. So not only is it like the creaminess from both, the acidity cutting through the saltiness of the oyster, but it has to do with those umamis creating that perfect synergy. And Ethan, you know, while we're talking about this, it's that I think it's the lees that helps give us that umami character in champagne. What other wine is just like is a great classic oyster pairing wine? Well, you have to go with Muscadet first. Right. And they even put on their label Surly Aging. So Mm -hmm. extend lees aging with more of that umami. But I can also like, I mean, one of your favorites, Albarino. Yeah. can go very well. That makes sense. Northwestern Spain, right along the Atlantic Ocean. I've never been there. Hopefully one day. Looks beautiful. (laughs) I could assume they probably enjoy a lot of oysters up there. And a lot of times, Albarino has a little lease aging, too. They do. Yeah, it's a little salty. Yeah, exactly. So another great pairing there. And so actually, at the end of this article, it just leaves you with this cliffhanger, which I just kind of blew me away. And it was talking about pairing a fresh raw radish with champagne. Radish and champagne. I thought that was crazy. And apparently, the president of Delamont himself has this every week. He enjoys just a raw radish 
in champagne. And apparently it's the, like, you know, radish has a little bit of a spice character yeah. to it. Yeah. And so does champagne. And so mm-hmm. it kind of balances it out. And I think the cool thing about this is that you don't need to go spend, you know, a hundred bucks out at Hog Island Oysters to enjoy a good food pairing. You can literally go to your garden. Don't get me wrong. I still want to go to Hog Island. <laughs> yeah. I even bring my radishes from my garden. I don't grow radish, but maybe next year I will. Have you ever seen a watermelon radish? You love your watermelon radishes. They're so pretty. <laughs> they I are. just never think of like having a radish by itself. I mean, maybe next time I go to our local wine bar and I get a crudite, I just say, hey, like, just do all radish. And they're going to look at me like I'm weird. But you know me. I love Delamont. So if they say that's what it is, I'm going to trust it. And I'm going to have to try it out. I think so. So I think we should get into today's subject, as we mentioned earlier. Let's do it. Let's get into Anderson Valley. And so Anderson Valley, I think, has a special place in Ethan and I's heart. Uh, It's just, it's a really cool spot, nonetheless. And so where is Anderson Valley for starters? Well, if you were to be in Sonoma County, the county directly north is going to be Mendocino. So you're still right along the Pacific Ocean. And within Mendocino, there's this small little valley. It's less than 20 miles in length, and that is Anderson Valley. So at the base, we have the town Boonville, and then it goes all the way up, and it actually gets quite close to the ocean, um, within 30 miles of the ocean. But here, I mean, you're not more, you're just about like 100, 120 miles or so north of San Francisco. So um, still, you know, just kind of an extension of the Bay Area. So Anderson Valley coined its name from Walt Anderson and his family, who were pioneers, back in this area, uh, back during the pioneering days. Now, The legend has it that his kids were on a hunt and they were running through a forest and of course they stumbled upon this beautiful abundant valley below them. At the time, the family was facing some challenges with the local tribes not wanting them in this area. So they had a lot of motivation to move in general. The kids came back and told the family about this valley. They moved up and settled into this area, started farming. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful place and we have been there. We'll talk about this later. Makes sense why people want to settle there, especially if they're the first ones to find it. Yeah. And they named it Anderson Valley because it is that. It is a valley. Now, of course, just like most other regions of California, a lot of immigrants migrated out here during the gold rush. In this particular area, there were a lot of Italian immigrants, and they brought a lot of their native vinifera varieties with them and started planting grapes to, of course, make wine. So I guess make up for the fact that they weren't striking it rich in gold. That's probably why there was a lot of wine planted out here, grapes planted out here back in the day. From there, commercial winemaking didn't really take off until the 1960s, post-World War II. The Hush family came out there. The family that started Navarro Vineyards came out. And from there, commercial winemaking started to take off. We consider this like an on-the-rise wine-growing region for a lot of reasons. No, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, most of that is because of the unique climate that we experience. In fact, Anderson Valley is often coined as one of the coolest wine-growing regions in the entire state of California. And it's a big state, so that is definitely saying something. We weren't, it wasn't very cold the time we went. (laughs) Yes, of course. The one time we go up there, we did a little vineyard filming and we were not prepared. It was quite warm out there in the sun. But generally speaking, the average temperature throughout the entire year is 53 degrees, give or take. Wow. So that's the average. But I mean, it's not uncommon to have this huge diurnal shift so much, I mean, maybe as high as 50 degrees some days where it gets, you know, during the, you know, the, the heat of the growing season, it could get up into the 80s, maybe 90s. But at nighttime, it's just going to cool down tremendously which is that, you know, it's a great sign of a great wine region. 
because this region is, I mean, it's like I said earlier, it's very close to the Pacific Ocean. And I mean, it's right within the coastal mountain range itself. Like you said, it's a little valley. And the further north you go in the valley, you're actually a little closer to the ocean. Whereas the further south, you're going a little bit further inland. And so it's going to be a little bit of a different microclimate there, a little bit warmer. You'll see a few different grape varieties planted there. But overall, it's, you know, it's this cool climate um, that has this nice, long, dry growing season, which, again, is something that you hear over and over again as indicators of a really high quality growing region. So all the wine geeks out there, you hear Madison say it's a cool climate. I believe on the UC Davis Winkler scale, it's a climate one. So it's the coolest climate for growing grapes for wine production. It experiences a large diurnal shift. During their hotter days in the midst of the growing season, it doesn't exceed 80 to 90 degrees. That sounds like it's perfect for a certain variety that tends to be a little finicky but loves to benefit from these climates. <laughs> That's right. And that is Pinot Noir. And Pinot Noir and, of course, Chardonnay being the second variety out here, a lot of this is planted uh, both in still and made in sparkling versions as well. It's kind of nice to see other regions in the world focusing on sparkling wine production. So you see a lot of Pinot, you see a lot of Chard, but they're also, and I need to do more digging in to figure out why, there's a large focus on Alsatian varieties out there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Riesling, Gewürz demeanor, there's musket out there. They even have a winter white wine festival every year that is focused on Alsatian grape varieties. I've had a Riesling from the Wiley Vineyard, which is like one of our favorite, probably one of the most famous re- uh, vineyards up there. And it was amazing. Yeah, Ethan, I've actually never had the Riesling from Wiley, but I've had plenty of the Chardonnay and Pinot Noir coming from that vineyard. And holy cow, it is so beautiful, so delicate. And very Burgundian in style, I would say, too. That vineyard actually has old vine Riesling, which you don't see a lot of. No, you really don't. In the United States. I mean, you see a lot of it in Germany, but... Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, so speaking of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, you talked a lot about that just now. Um, They say that 50% of all the vineyards are only planted to those two varieties. And 90% of Anderson Valley's vineyards overall all have Pinot Noir planted. So... Pinot Noir is definitely going to be the main focus of the grapes that are grown up there. And for good reason, too. I mean, again, if you guys have not had a wine from Anderson Valley, please do yourself a favor because they are so beautiful. So we've been talking about Anderson Valley a lot. Um, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but Anderson Valley is an AVA. It's an American viticultural area, and it was awarded the status in 1983. So if you think look back, I mean, the first AVA was established in 1981. So... Anderson Valley was, you know, just shortly thereafter, it was recognized as a key wine growing region. And it's actually a sub ABA within Mendocino County. Mm-hmm. Mendocino County has a number of different ABAs, some like Mendocino Ridge. There's McDowell Valley, Cold Ranch for one. Cold Ranch is a, an interesting one. Yeah, it's the uh, smallest in the country, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. less than what, like 60 acres yeah. planted. And it's all owned by one person, too, which is pretty crazy. Could you imagine for- owning one ABA? That'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty awesome. Cool life goal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but regardless, guys, it's a great spot. Ethan and I, like we said, we went up there um, and during the summertime for a little filming. And not, I mean, we left from Napa Valley. It was well, like probably like a two and a half, three hour drive from mm-hmm. here. It was a windy road. So if you get car sick, make sure you're driving. But it was just gorgeous. I mean, there was fruit farm stands spotted all along the drive. And you're driving like through the forest, like you were saying. And you get up on top of some of these vineyards where you can see the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful. They have so many different Airbnbs. You can go camping there, wine tasting. What's not to love? Exactly. It's a cute little place to vacation for sure. 
And those who love festivals, like I said earlier, they do the Winter White Wine Festival. They do a Pinot Noir Festival. They do salmon barbecues all the time because the salmon are abundant throughout all the rivers there because they flow down into the Russian River there. Um, it's such a great place. But look out for some well-known producers from this region. Bravium is one of my personal favorites coming from this area. I know we've built a, such a strong connection with the vintner of and the, the owner of this winery. It, they make some excellent versions of these Burgundian varieties. Um, I believe they're coming out with some new stuff too as well. The rosé is one of my favorite rosés coming from this region. You definitely have to take a trip up there. Next time you're in Napa or Sonoma, it's only an hour, an hour and a half drive to get up there. Try some of those wines from this region. All right, Ethan, I think it's about time we wrap this up. But folks, I hope you guys learned a thing or two about Anderson Valley. And if nothing else, I hope you're just you know excited and inspired to drink more wines from this amazing region. But before we leave you guys today, Ethan and I want to start a new segment. We're going to call it The Nightcap. And The Nightcap is going to involve anything that Mattis and I are consuming currently, have consumed in the past, or will be consuming. This could be wines, it could be spirits, it could be non-alcoholic beverages. And for today's, we're doing Baga. Yes, and I was so excited when we decided to drink some Baga this week because Baga is one of those grapes that I feel like I've studied about and I've read about in so many different wine textbooks, but never actually tasted and experienced for myself. So it's an indigenous grape variety to Portugal. Yeah, more specifically, it's in uh, along the western coast of Portugal mm-hmm. in the VR of Bairro Atlântico. More specifically, there's a DOC, the only DOC within that region. It's called Bariada. Uh, it's actually found there, which predominantly of their wines are going to be based off of Baga. They make still reds, which we're enjoying, uh, rosés, and actually traditional method sparklings. And Baca is actually the base to the infamous Matus Rosé. Yeah, you know, can't say I've ever had Matus before. But this wine that we are enjoying, like you said, Ethan, it's a red wine. So this is Baga. And it's actually, it's not from the Bairrada DOP, but it's coming from the BR. So the Berra Atlantico. Yeah. Which you said is right along the coast. And kind of characteristics that I had always, you know, kind of associated with this grape were dark fruit, high acid, high tannin, kind of like dusty dried fruits. Mm-hmm. And I definitely see that in this wine, but I'm not going to lie. This wine, I mean, I get some of the darker, like black cherry, a little blackberry, um, some dried fruit too, but it's not as big as I was expecting. In my head from the reading in the textbooks, it's like, oh, it's the, it's a big wine of Portugal. But, it, you know, it's kind of almost like a wannabe Nebbiolo or something of that sort. It's like a baby Barolo. Mm-hmm. It is. It has the same characteristics. Like you get that sort of oxidative fruit character to me, I get this like beautiful like aged balsamic, but like the mushroom characteristic really stands out. I mean, this wine screams old world. It's such a drinkable wine. It's nice to enjoy. I'd love to have it with some food. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I think it's very food friendly. Yeah. Um, you get kind of the you get kind of like the the fine gritty tannins that you would see in Italy. I think that's mm-hmm. why it's often probably can you know compared to Italian wines. But it's got that nice acidity that I do think this would go with a variety of meats, pastas, I mean, even like a nice like chicken dish or something like that. It's very versatile. All right. That's our nightcap, folks. Go out and find a bottle of some Baga. We'd love to hear from you. And stay tuned to some future episodes of the Vine to Mind podcast.